Well, we come to really the second to the last week here in this series, um, The Good Life. And I'm going to ask if the ushers would come and kind of hand out something that I'm going to ask you to kind of hold on to through the service. Hopefully I won't hear any of these break or crack. I'm going to grab one myself, in fact, if I can do that. Good. I got the right color right here. Thank you. Yeah, there's a, there's a reason it's the right color, Paul. Um, so what I wanted to do is just mention to you that next week as we kind of conclude this series, we're going to be concluding this series talking about, we've been talking about the good life and, and we've been talking lately about doing good and today together um, doing good. But I, I wanted to kind of stop and do a little pop quiz, okay? Everybody ready for that? Grab a pen, paper. Yeah, you ready to do this? Well, maybe you can do it mentally. Um, Kind of been looking at this series, and so here's the first question, and it's kind of a fill in the blank, so in your mind, if you could fill in the blank, the good life does not consist of blank of things. The abundance of things. And it is not in the blank of trials. Absence of trials. Wow, someone's getting it here. But in a living personal relationship with Jesus, a source of all goodness. Okay, he... In Christ, as he says, I've come that you may have life and have it to its fullest, which is that word shalom, that kind of idea of this full life that you desire for someone you deeply love when your kids are standing um, here at an altar at marriage or even as a child that's been dedicated. I just want this kind of life for my child. And we're talking about this kind of good life. Let me give you a second question. If you were here last week or saw it on the the live stream, uh, here's another fill in the blank. When the righteous prospers... The whole city celebrates. Wow, you guys, you know what? You're going to get an A-plus on this. Um, and that's found in Proverbs 11.10. Let me give you one last question. It's what our vision has been, what we've talked about it this last May and through June. And it's a simple statement that says, imagine a church that does whatever it takes to serve. Oh, wow. You, you know, let's say that with some vigor and life. To serve. <laughs> Oh, man, we got to serve. Okay, imagine church that does whatever it takes to serve. Yes, the West Metro in the name of Christ. And today that's what we're talking about, doing good together, because there's something powerful about doing good together. Uh, we saw that in a number of occasions and things that we hadn't planned but God brought into our way in order to bring about good. Uh, a funeral earlier in the summer, and then one just recently with Officer Bill Matthews, and it was amazing how people came together. There's something about people coming together to do good. Uh, if you didn't know, yesterday, some of you may have seen it on on, on TV, there's been some reports. Um, uh, Terry Esau with Free Bikes for Kids, and I see him back here, and he doesn't, you want to raise your hand just for a second, Terry? No, he doesn't want to raise his hand. <laughs> Terry had a, had a career in doing um, music production, and if you've heard, like, the Care 11 once used to, you know, the kind of intro and exit was the jingle, kind of wrote, um, Mall of America, some of you have heard that. Um, there's a place for what? Yeah, okay. Wow, you know that one better than my... Anyway, um, <clears throat> and then wrote a couple books, but then recently has, and probably like uh, six years or so, started something out of just his passion for for riding bikes and said to a group of guys who's riding bikes with let's give some bikes away to kids and they gave away about a hundred and some and then a few just I think it, you know just in the last previous time they so they did it they had a, a Guinness World Book of Records 5,512 bikes they gave away 
And in this year, at this point, they've collected 9,000 bikes. So we, um, we give God great praise because God does something when people come together to do good. I uh, got this letter from Sergeant Salim Omari, second in command over the honor guard, after that funeral that we just did for his Officer William, um, Officer William Matthews. He says, after nearly two weeks of being gone between the Matthews funeral and the annual honor guard training at Camp Ripley, I'm finally beginning to catch up on things. Just got this. Commander Holmquist and I are so appreciative of how you and your entire congregation supported our efforts. Everyone was friendly, helpful, and supportive. Your staff welcomed us into your church and truly allowed us to succeed. Having prepped in many churches in the past, I can honestly say that we would not have been able to do what we did without your support. Your people were flexible, adaptable, and patient. And most importantly, I thought this was very interesting. Most importantly, you continued to keep us grounded by reminding us that it was God alone that provided us with the will and ability to plan as we did. Uh, that would not have happened if there was only one person fulfilling our vision saying, I'll do whatever it takes. That took a whole group of people. And some people had to actually say, and we said, we can't use all the people. We had a lot of people who signed up and, and, and a number of them. We said, you know, here's how we're going to ask you to do whatever it takes. Pray. Just stay home and pray. And God did some amazing things. The good life that allows others to experience the goodness of God happens when one of us commits to doing good. Because when it's not just the one, but when we do this together, when each one of us do it, the impact is overwhelming, extraordinary, and releases a tangible presence of God. Our, our collective goodness in serving points to God. So I'm going to read to you a scripture that it kind of sums us up in First Peter chapter 2. And Peter is writing to a whole group of people here, and I, I went through this, so it's, you're not going to find an actual translation on this. I went through the Greek, to be honest, and went back, and, and I, with some other translations, thought, I really want this to say it in a way that I sense it being said in, in that Greek language. So I'm going to read to you, and, and some of it will be very parallel to other translations, but it says in chapter 2, verse 9 through 12, listen to these words, but you are God's chosen generation, his royal priesthood. His holy nation, his peculiar people, which is an interesting word because it really means this idea of someone who is special, they're purchased, they're God's own possession. All the old titles of God's people now belong to you. It is for you now to demonstrate the goodness of him who has called you out of the darkness into his amazing light. In the past, you were not a people at all. Now you are the people of God. And once you knew very little of God's kindness, now your very lives have been changed by it. I beg you, as those whom I love, to live in this world as strangers and temporary residents, to not give into the desires of your lower nature, for they are always at war with your souls, and they actually cause war with others. Live such good lives among those who don't know God that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your loving goodness. The word there is really beautiful works. And I like the idea of your loving goodness because it springs out of the loving goodness in the things that you do. And they glorify God on the day he visits us. It could be the final day he comes. It could be that he visits in some way through a revival. And people go, ah, I get it. 
There's three things I want you to know. And I'll be honest, I've been a little bit nervous in some ways with some of the things that I'm going to be sharing because you may get angry at me, you know, and so that's okay because I think it's rooted in God's word. And I felt like we had to respond to what's going on in our world around us. And the very first thing that you read in this passage of scripture is this, we're living in a world of darkness. That's what it says, we're living in a world of darkness and never have that been more true than just what we've been seeing lately. We saw the eclipse of the sun, this physical eclipse where things got dark for a moment. It kind of almost foreshadowed the the darkness we're seeing throughout our world. It's interesting what people have said and how they described it. I I, I saw a clip on the evening news of the TV, late late TV show host, Jimmy Kimmel, and he had given a very sobering, tearful kind of monologue after that day after, that night after, and didn't go into his routine, and many of them didn't have anything humorous. And he said at one point this, he said, it's like someone has opened the door to hell. The atmosphere in our nation is full of division, strife, self-righteous, hatred, anger, and bitterness. I was in the kitchen the other day talking with uh, two ladies who were working there, Linda Lean and and Marsha Callagher. And and Marsha said it really well as we were just talking a little bit about it. She goes, it's like I feel this soul pain. It's just deep in your gut. We're living in a time of spiritual crisis in this more apparent than I think we've seen in years. It's dark outside. And I want to share with you what I think you need to kind of, I just want to kind of break down what this darkness, this spiritual crisis is. And and the first part is there's a crisis of anger and division that I think is just bleeding out everywhere. You see it in offices, you see it in all kinds of different groups. A few weeks ago, my daughter... I had bought tickets to hear the author and research professor Brene Brown. It was kind of a dad-grown-daughter kind of night, date night kind of thing. It was really fun. Anyway, and Brene Brown holds the endowed chair at the University of Houston's Graduate College for Social Work. And that evening, she made some interesting statements. She said, when I look through the 200,000-plus pieces of data that my team has collected over the past 15 years... I can only conclude our world is in a collective spiritual crisis. This is a research professor. We've sorted ourselves into factions based on our politics and ideology. We've turned away from one another towards blame and rage. We're lonely and untethered and scared. Rather than coming together and sharing our experiences, we're screaming at one another from further and further away. Cynicism and distrust have a stranglehold on our hearts. It seems that every week there's another issue to get angry about and divide us. I was at another event just this last week or so, and it was... um, with Chad Greenway, he was over at St. Philip the Deacon, and he was sharing at their faith and life thing where um, Tim Westermeyer is the pastor over there, and, and we were there in a little group beforehand, and I was talking to someone, they said, well, we're a little bit nervous because there might be some questions that could really create some angst and division, and you know, so, so they go through the whole thing, he presents this whole thing, finally we come to the Q&A, and the question that people have been waiting to ask, what do you think it is? Yeah, it was, would you kneel during the national anthem and the raising of the flag? 
And there was kind of a little bit of gas. People were a little bit like, well, what's he going to say? And I remember thinking I wanted to hear what he say, but I didn't really want to hear him give my answer. I wanted to hear what was in his heart. He had been in the NFL for 11 years. So I thought, you know, it'd be good to understand how he sees it from his perspective. And his answer was, I stand for the flag. I would stand for the flag, but I would lock my arms with my teammates. Many who didn't grow up in a family with a dad and a mom who loved them and invested in them. I grew up in a small town in South Dakota, and not only did my parents provide a really good understanding of what it means to live with, with ethics and values, but I also had a whole town, a kind of a village who raised me. But I also played with a number of teammates, and he said Florida for some reason, but he said a number from, from Florida who... Um, who came from some really tough neighborhoods, who didn't even know who their dad was. And, and he said they live with deficits that I, I know nothing about and could hardly ever understand. And he said, because of what has been in their experience, I also would lock arms because of the systemic racism and that kind of idea that's been in our country. There is kind of a way that's not just an either or, but somehow you got to respond in a way that has some nuance to it and understanding. There's a crisis not just of anger and division, there's a crisis of what I call isolation and loneliness. Because whenever you start to break up into these isolated, angry groups, you begin to start getting your group and you start to use labels. And loneliness and isolation envelops us. A guy in a 20-something group that I'm a part of said just the other day, we have more and quicker ways to stay in touch and communicate, to be connected but it all feels so thin and superficial. There is no, there's an overall growing sense of loneliness. Neuroscience researcher John Cacciapo of the University of Chicago has studied loneliness for the past 20 years and he calls it perceived social isolation. What he says is we experience loneliness when we feel disconnected. And that's in light of what this 20 something said, we're in the most connected generation ever. Yet it's superficial and thin. What he goes on to explain, this neuroscience researcher, is that loneliness is not just a sad condition, it's a dangerous one. Our brains respond to the feeling of this isolation and loneliness by going into a self-preservation mode. And when we feel isolated, disconnected, and lonely, we try to protect ourselves, and that means less empathy, more defensiveness, more uh, numbing, and less listening. When we feel hurt, we spread hurt. It's dangerous. It's not just a sad state of affairs. It's dangerous. Because you've probably heard this before. Hurting people do what? Hurt people. And all this anger and division with this increased isolation and loneliness begins to spread and the crisis moves into a place of what I call fear and hopelessness. There's just a a, a growing sense of fear. Terrorism helps. All this stuff helps. And I believe Satan's having a field day. He has us as a nation, a people, right where he wants us, filled with fear, feeling hopeless. Fear kills us, it divides us, it increases our loneliness, and it produces a paralyzing hopelessness. There is the fear of vulnerability, there's a fear of getting hurt, there's the fear of criticism, of conflict, of not measuring up, of being lonely, of feeling disconnected. And if not really bravely faced we're going to look at in a moment in, in what Peter has to say, it just leads to hopelessness and devastation. So what's the answer? The word of God seems to make this really clear. If you look at these verses, where he says in verses 9 and 10, God has chosen us. He says the church, and specifically 
we have these titles that was given to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was given to be a light to the whole world, and they ended up being selfish. They didn't serve anyone but themselves. They gave birth to the suffering servant, Jesus, who then brought all of us who say, I want Jesus, I want his light in my life. You are now a light. And so he says, it is for you now. It's interesting, the word now. There's this idea of, it's the time to do it. To demonstrate the goodness of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his amazing light. In the past, you were not a people at all. Now you are the people of God. You're the representatives, you and me, everywhere we go. We have light, God's light in our heart. If we've opened our heart and said, God, I want you to use me. I want to be a servant in these situations. And once you knew very little of God's kindness, now your very lives have been changed by it. His kindness has, has moved into that isolation, loneliness, and hopelessness, and, and fear, and all that stuff. And his kindness is now abiding with you so that you can go and turn around and live in the same way with others. So that your life can bring about the light that can change someone. And I'm going to just plead with you what I believe Peter pleads with people in this passage. It's really interesting because you go along, it's just the very same thought that came to my mind. And that is, folks, let us not add to the darkness. Peter kind of says it. God chose you. You're holy. You're set apart. You're a belong. You belong to God, no longer to yourself. So Peter writes, don't add to the darkness. Look at verse 12. Live such good lives among those who don't, no, I mean verse 11. Literally says, I beg you as those whom I love to not give in to the desires of your lower natures for they are always at war with your souls. Live such good lives among those who don't know God that they may see your loving goodness and they will, they will be forced by what you do and how you are interacting. You can't change anyone, but there's a good chance they can look at you. In fact, of looking at you, when you're looking up to God to provide this light, they're going to look to him. And so Peter kind of just says, don't add to the darkness. Be a light. And, and I want to just share with you some very, a couple practical ways that you can actually be a light in this day, in this age. Now, I could give you all kinds of ways to do this, because there are all kinds of ways in the Word of God. The Word of God, when people say, how do I know the will of God? The will of God is pretty simple. There's some really simple things that he says, you do this, you don't lie, you don't steal, you, you love in, in this way, in, in the sense that you tell the truth. It goes all these different things. There's ways to, to not add to the darkness. But I want to share with you, in the midst of this isolation and loneliness and the fear that is gripping people and this separating out angry and, and, and living divided lives, the first thing I want to say is when you have the inclination to move away from someone, I'm going to ask you to think about getting closer. Okay? You go, you know what? They, they don't, they don't, I, I, they don't believe the way I believe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say don't add to the darkness. Don't isolate. Don't sort yourself into a faction. Don't divide and get angry. Don't start putting labels on a person. Romans 5.8 says this. God demonstrates. Because he says, in the, in Peter says, demonstrate goodness. God demonstrates his love, his goodness for us in this. That while we were sinners, this label, what did he, Christ died for us. God left his throne in glory and moved closer. Didn't move away. 
John 1.14 says the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. Moved and, and identified with us. Was baptized. Jesus was baptized. He wasn't a sinner, but he identified with the sinfulness. So that there would be this relationship that could be developed. He moved closer. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Full of two things. Grace and truth. The ability to move closer in grace and still have your opinion and still be able to say, you know, we may not agree on this, but I, I'm okay to disagree because I can still be close to you. I can still be near you. I can still seek to understand you and, and grow in this. It's so critical that we don't move away. It's so critical when you're in the office with other people and you just go, oh, that group. God didn't turn away. He didn't isolate himself. He moved towards us. He literally moved in for a while. He came full of grace and truth. He didn't come with anger and condemnation. He came and identified with us. He made it clear that he understood our situation. He gained our trust by serving and sacrificing and loving us. That's what is meant when it says we have seen his glory. We saw his sacrificial, selfless service to the point of his death. And that brought a great light. Don't add to the darkness. Jesus' life and his teaching made this point. He says, you've heard it said. Here's, here's the normal course of action. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, who maybe stand in a group different than you. Luke's gospel says it this way. Love your enemies. Do good. Demonstrate, as Peter says, goodness to those who hate you. Bless those. Speak well of those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And he's not talking about prayers of condemnation. You know, man, let them have it, God. He's saying, God, I don't understand this, and I don't know what's going on in this person's life, and I would like to, if I move in closer, to be able to pray more intelligently. But God, I just would pray for your shalom, your blessing on that person's life, because they are hurting people, and they're hurting people. Jesus knew it was really hard to hate people up close and personal. Do you know that? It's really easy to hate a group from far away. You put a label on them and you put that label on them. Those socialist Democrats. Those power-hungry Republicans. Those angry feminists. Those wealthy, out-of-touch white men. Those immoral religious liberals. And those hypocritical, closed-minded fundamentalists, you put the label that you have, think about the label you have, that just grates at you. We label them by either race, religion, age, gender, idealism, and whatever we can, and we keep them far enough away and impersonal so that we never get close enough to understand them. We, we, we put them in a group, and in doing so in those labels, we give them labels and we dehumanize them in the process. And so you, you don't ever do what Jesus did with people who had labels, who were lepers, who were untouchable. You know, obviously they've done some incredibly wrong things. But Jesus would walk up, not only would he touch them, but he'd look in their eyes. Because when you get up close and personal, you've got to look in their eyes. And when you look in the eyes, you find what God says about every person somewhere, even as messed up as you may think they are, is the stamp of the image of God. I was in this uh, public radio thing, and they were talking, and they gave me this question that they, I, I know the person who the interviewer wanted to, you know, was really going to trip me up on this. And he goes, she goes, well, don't we all pray to the same God? And I was, I just remember when I, before I went in there, I, I just said, I'm not going to answer first. 
I'm not going to say anything about Trump. I'm not going to do anything but talk about Jesus. And I waited, and someone else answered, someone else answered, and as I waited, Jesus gave me this answer, and he said, listen, we are dumbing down the whole thing by saying we all pray to the same God, because the ISIS person doesn't say pray to the same God that you as this Muslim mom here does. The, the, the fundamentalist uh, white supremacist doesn't pray to the same God that I do, even though they may be labeled Christian. What we have a link that we all have linked to, it doesn't matter where you come from, is the image of God. And I said, that's where you got to be. Then we need to talk about these differences of the way that we see this God. How has he revealed himself? And if you don't get close, you're never going to see the image of God on a label of a group of people. Because he knew, Jesus did, that the quickest way to dehumanize someone was evident in the way that we speak of others. You know, the hatred in our words is really dangerous. Derogatory names dehumanize, and our words actually open the door to treat people the way we talk about them. Jesus knew that. These weren't just nice little things that Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't kind of like, oh, here's a nice little thing that you can write up on a plaque someday. He was saying things that just drove to the heart of what was going on even in his culture. Again, he says to his brother, anyone who says Raka is answerable to Sanhedrin. You know, it's kind of thing, if you say something in such a way, an idiot or something, you'll be, can be defaming him and you could end up in court, is what Jesus is saying. But anyone who says, you fool, now we're getting down to a level where you're, where you're totally just, you're, 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 you're wiping out any sense of their humanity, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Oh, the message Bible says it this way, carelessly call a brother an idiot and you might just find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell, stupid, at a brother or sister and you are on the brink of hellfire, the simple moral fact is that words kill. And if you want to know whether that really happens, you just think about in history, it happens all the time. Listen to our own language and pay attention to it because it starts with the way you speak. And I'm going to ask you, don't add to the darkness by the way you speak. Every word that comes out of our mouth, God is going to weigh and measure. And I'm not saying this in a judgmental way. I am speaking to myself but I think it's so critical right now. In World War II, the Nazis described the Jews as untermenschen, which means under or below or sub. And the word mention is, is human or people, subhuman. Because you need to dull your emotional compassion and create, create an emotional disgust so you can isolate, judge, create fear, all that would be needed to make hate possible. In fact, they called Jews rats and depicted them as disease-carrying rodents in everything from military pamphlets into children's books. And what do you do with rats? You exterminate them. Our words really make a difference. In this culture we're living in, and you're at the water cooler, and you're just saying, your words make a difference. They dull the compassion. They take away your ability to move close, to look into the eyes of someone and say, they have the image of God. I cannot in any way call God's created being this. The Rwandan genocide in Rwanda. The Hutus called the Tutsis cockroaches. What do you do with cockroaches? You just stamp them out. You get rid of them. 
Our language dehumanizes, and all this is done to reduce someone's humanity so we can get away with hurting them and eventually denying them some basic human rights. I could go through slavery in our country. I could go through all kinds of things. Let me read what one author says, and let me warn you, it's quite convicting, and you can become angry if you want. If you're offended when someone calls a policeman a pig, then you also should be offended when you hear Muslim reduced to terrorists or Mexicans to illegals. Love doesn't work in such generalizations. If you're offended by a meme of Trump photoshopped to look like Hitler, then you should have been offended when Obama was photoshopped to look like a monkey. If you're offended when Hillary Clinton is called the B-word, C-word, or whatever word you want to call her, then you should be offended when Melania Trump is called a Trump or a whore. I'm not holding back. This is happening. This is real. You see it on TV. Your kids are hearing it. If you're offended when people call the twins losers, then you should also be offended when they call the Yankees the best team money can buy. (laughs) You just can't have it one way. Love requires moving in, getting to know and understanding another person, seeing every person in the image of God, even as marred as you think that image is. Names, our language, what we say, how we talk about other, only increases our isolation and anger and fear. It dehumanizes when Jesus calls us to rehumanize people through love, doing good by offering prayers for them. As it says, and as, as Peter himself said here, it is now time for us to do together this serving which demonstrates good and does not add to the darkness. I just can't say that strongly enough. And then the second thing is just be careful about taking sides. Be a peacemaker. I just want to challenge you. Be careful about taking sides. Again, I am not saying you're wishy-washy in any way. You hold your opinion and you be firm about your opinion, but you do so in a loving and kind way. Um, I was talking with... um, with uh, Sandy Gilbert, who's a lawyer, and she was, she's doing some talks internationally, and some of it is she talks about John Locke and the fair market place of ideas. We don't have that today. There isn't an ability to discuss ideas and to do so in a way that's kind and loving and rational. But we have to do that. That can happen. You can do that right where you live, where you work, where you go to school, where you socialize. You can begin to start saying, you know what? Let's, let's take all the emotion out of it. Jesus, uh, if you just ask him, he, he says, if you choose to be a peacemaker and not a peacekeeper, you will face pain and hatred of others. He, he says at one point in the, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. That sounds really wonderful, doesn't it, to be called the son of God? But guess what? What happened to the son of God? He got crucified. Not the best place to be if you really want to just keep peace and not have any conflict and not have any problems at all. Because right after he says, blessed are the peacemakers, they'll become the sons of God. You know what he says? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. They just follow one after the other. Peacemakers seek to understand, seldom do they see things as black and white. And not saying there aren't black and whites. There really are black and whites. So hear me, hear me say it again. There are black and whites. But here's what I want you to understand, because in the Word of God, you see this as well. 
Making peace requires hard work and it requires the ability to listen well and to take a nuanced stance. There are nuances in, in, in these issues we're talking about today. How do you straddle the tension of supporting a system you love and yet hold it accountable? How do you do like a Chad Greenway that says, you know what, I'm going to still respect the flag, but at the same time, I understand what's going on, I'm going to try and lock arms. I'm going to try in a way that we can somehow say there's two issues here that are at work and we can't just mutually make them exclusive. There's a, uh, a former Penn State athlete, and some of you remember what happened with the sexual abuse at Penn State and, and the things that happened with Joe Paterno. This, this athlete took a stand, a real strong stand, and an advocate against the abuse sufferers who suffered due to the silence of the football program and the silence of the beloved hero-sized adoration given to head coach Joe Paterno. And this former athlete loved the football program. He loved Joe Paterno, and he admired him for all that he had done to produce a winning team. Yet he still felt compelled to stand against the complicit silence of the head coach as well as the football program. The hate he received, he says, from other players and friends he had known for 30 years was unbelievable. Because he tried to take a nuanced stand. I love my school. I love this. And, and, and fear would cause me to go back and say nothing. Love would say, let's just look at these issues. And what happens is you will be persecuted. Because one side won't like you and the other side won't like you. He says, when you love a place like we love Penn State, you fight to make it better, to own our problems, to fix them. You don't pretend that everything is okay. That's not loyalty, love. That's fear. To be a peacemaker means you will face criticism of people who are intent, catch this, on forcing you to be in a, what I call, false either-or dichotomy. You will be shamed for not hating the right people. You ever thought that? We can do it real easily as a church. It's messy and painful to take a nuanced stance, but I believe it's Christ-like. Jesus faced this all the time. I'm going to just run through a couple of them quickly for you. Paying taxes in Mark 12, 13 through 15. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. We understand you're a man of integrity, so now hate the right people or do the right, here it is. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, if this isn't a setup, what is? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Either or, false dichotomy. Whose side are you on, Jesus? Give us an easy answer to justify our anger and our self-righteous position. And Jesus doesn't. He takes a nuanced response to it. The woman caught in adultery, John 8. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. They come to him in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say, stone her or not? The man born blind from birth, his disciples even, are walking along. John 9, they say, Rabbi... Who sinned, the man or his parents, and that he was born blind? And he goes, neither. Folks, we are going to be called to take one side or the other, and I'm just going to encourage you um, to not begin to faction out. Don't add to the darkness. So many of the issues we're facing are not just black and white. They are deeply nuanced, and they need great wisdom. They need you to pray to God. The answer is are not just either or. We're called to be peacemaker, not side takers. I knew I wasn't going to necessarily be liked by this. So how do you respect the flag yet call out systemic racism? How do you respect 
law enforcement like we had the opportunity to do, which I'm so grateful for, yet recognize there's prejudices in the system? How do you truly seek peace between factions that want you to get angry with them and move to a self-righteous place in order to be able to condemn and put a label on them? And here's my last words here. Don't wait for the perfect opportunity. Do good now. Do good now. That word in the Greek there is just great. It's this idea um, where he he just says, live such good lives. The word goodness, um, loving goodness, is beautiful. It's not necessarily moral or ethic. It's much more the idea of of, of this sense of, of beauty. The word actually means beautiful or handsome or excellent or commendable or admirable or praiseworthy. It means that you hold an issue in such a way that you're into a situation. And yes, some people might be angry at you. Usually not the people that are against you. It's usually the people that want you to just take their side that you've been, they perceive or they know even your, your opinion is, is similar to theirs, but they want you to be angry. But you don't do it like that. You do it in a way that gives glory to God. It, it just is this life that just is, it's beautiful, it's handsome, it's excellent, it's commendable, it's admirable, it's praiseworthy. And together we're called to follow Jesus so that the very character and life of Jesus grows in us and allows this eternally good life of God to touch others right where we live in our homes, in our neighborhoods, where we work, go to school, socialize, buy our gas, groceries. This is critical today more than any time I have ever experienced, and I think many of you have experienced. And so um, I just saw this little video. It's so cute, and I thought it would be fun because this has been heavy. Um, Don't wait for the perfect opportunity. Do good now. If you want to show that. There's a lot of things going on in the world. Here's some advice. Call Jesus. Things not working out at your job. Call Jesus. Things not working out at your school. Call Jesus. Things not working out like... Anyway, call Jesus. Everybody needs a little Jesus now and then in their heart. If your boyfriend break up with you, call Jesus. Don't call Tyrone. Call Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Yes. So, <clears throat> I love how she says, things are not good in the world, so call Jesus. I love the one that says, call Jesus, not Tyrone. Uh, okay, I wasn't planning on calling Tyrone, but I, I just don't wait for the perfect moment. <laughs> call Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm in a moment right here. I'm going to step into something. Some people who, who I want to, I'm friends with might just not like the way I handle this because they want me to do this and act this way. I'm going to ask you to not do what anyone else wants you to do. Call Jesus and say, Jesus, how am I to live and demonstrate your goodness so that I don't add to the darkness, but I begin to be the light in these situations. And folks, if we as a church can't talk about it, where will we ever see it talked about? We've got to do it.